Today on episode number 346 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Archna McElliott joins me to talk about filling the equity gap in STEM fields. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Based on my partnership with the California State University, I am so glad to be welcoming Archna McElliott to the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. She's an epidemiologist and professor of health science at California State University, Fullerton. She received her PhD in public health epidemiology from the joint doctoral program between the University of California, San Diego and San Diego State University. Her primary research interests include examination of the association between dietary intakes and chronic disease control and prevention, specifically cancer, in at-risk populations. She's also interested in assessing the relationship between dietary circulating biomarkers such as folate and cardinoids in conjunction with genetic polymorphisms on disease risk via population-based large cohort studies. Dr. McElliott has also received a number of externally funded grants that allow for developing curricula, guiding students through research, and directing training programs in efforts to support the success of underrepresented students. She serves as the director and principal investigator of BD3REAP, which you'll hear about during today's interview. Archna, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I always get interested in people's origins stories, and I want to hear the story about how you first got in to data science and also if it says anything about what students are experiencing today as they consider pursuing that field. Sure. So data science is a really amazing new field, relatively new field. But I like to say, and sometimes I know that depending on which colleagues I talk to, I actually say that epidemiologists, and I was trained in public health epidemiology, that epidemiologists were the first data scientists. In my courses, I talk about John Snow. He was an English physician, and he was one of the first to actually do what we call shoe leather epidemiology. He walks the streets of London to figure out what was the cause of cholera at that time. At that time in the 1800s, they thought that diseases spread through the air, not so different than what kind of we're experiencing now, but they really did not see it as having, there's bacteria and viruses, that there was no awareness of that. So he actually went door to door, collected data to see, okay, which families were getting ill, what was the source of the water, and he actually indeed found that it was through a certain source of water from the Thames River that was causing cholera. As a scientist, especially as an epidemiologist, data is it. I mean, we love looking at individual data. We love looking at overall uh, aggregated data. I mean, those are the patterns that tell us what's going on with health in our community. So 
I guess to make a long story short, how did I get into data science? Because I have to say that it was part of my DNA of my training in terms of looking at data. And really, depending on who you ask, data science is a really interdisciplinary field. It's not just one area. So it really is an amalgamation of several things. One is the statistical know-how. You have to know the stats. You have to know which tests to run, the statistics behind it. But you also have to understand the computational capabilities because now with the advent of big data, you have to be able to write algorithms. I mean, you have to write code, certain code, use different software, actually understand the storage of these massive amounts of data. And then the other very key important factor related to big data or data science is the expertise field. So you can't make sense at all. A computer scientist, a mathematician, uh, a statistician cannot make sense of this data unless you have someone who is knowledgeable in that expertise, whether that be a neuroscientist, whether that be a geneticist. So you really do need that interdisciplinary perspective when looking at data. And so I, I really try with my students for them to understand that, that we can't, and this has been a long ongoing conversation about working in silos. We can't work in silos. Some of the greatest innovations and discoveries have happened through a multidisciplinary perspective. So I really try to, to have my students acknowledge and understand that, and also to understand the greater impacts of this public health impact. That if you are just learning, studying one genetic polymorphic variant, what does that really mean in terms of public health? If you're only looking at one different pathway for um, a specific disease, how, what, what does that confer or add to the literature for that disease? If they're interested in data science, honestly, uh, the sky's the limit. This is the time to do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's an exciting time. It's a new world. It really is. A, a student, a middle school student, a high school student could go online, get data available via Google, many, many other open source data sets, and solve some of the problems that actually would take decades to solve. So I want to go back to Jon Snow. I'm going to make an assumption about Jon Snow. I think I've heard of him before, but I could also be imagining it. But I'm going to make an assumption about him. He sounds to me like he might be a man. He also sounds like he might be white. Is that correct? Absolutely. <laughs> so Absolutely. We, we know that Jon Snow has been multiplied and really has persisted in STEM fields more broadly. And also then, of course, within data science specifically, would you speak a bit about what we know in terms of representation of historically marginalized populations and also of women? Yes, thank you for asking that question. This is an important, critical, continued area that it's not even an area. It's it's almost something that is inherent in education that we have to address is the underrepresentedness, the inequality. I mean, I can just be very blatant about it. We have less than 10%, about 7% of the BIPOC community, African-American, Latinx communities, that are entering the STEM fields, the data science related fields, there's gender inequality as well. And so it's critical for us to address it. I mean, there's less than 10%, whereas 
they make up the BIPOC communities, the Black, Indigenous, people of color make up nearly 30 to 40 percent of certain areas and certain populations and in the United States as a whole. And so when you look to see that's called not having equal representation just by the numbers alone. And I really feel that when you don't have the voices, I mean, this gets us back into what we're facing today in our society, the continued inequities. And until we really address that through education, um, we're just going to continue to have health disparities. And I think people just can't close their eyes and say, well, it's not affecting me because it is affecting you and it will affect you. I think that that many people, individuals, adults, students, kids, they get into this mindset that it it is only that, well, if it's not affecting me, you know, that, then there's really nothing that I need to do about it. But in reality, as you can see, during this entire pandemic that we've gone through, it affects all of us. That unless we're able to address disparities, health inequities, educational inequities, it will impact all of our lives. I mean, we could see that if we're not taking addressing these, then it's going to impact our healthcare system. That's what's going on right now. It's impacting our healthcare system. And unless we give people access, appropriate access to care, appropriate and equitable access to education and many other areas, in many other areas, we're going to continue to see an onslaught of disparities that will impact all of us. When we start to look at some of the biases that exist that prevent the kind of inclusion that you describe, I so often hear conversations, which are important that look at how to change those perceptions. But I also have been have found very compelling the evidence that would say rather than, or perhaps not instead of, but in addition to, to place an emphasis on systems that could interrupt the bias. So the example could come from resumes. Perhaps we don't see the names before we evaluate the resume and whether or not this would be an individual we'd like to speak to. Are there things that come to your mind that you're seeing that can interrupt the systems that allow these inequities to persist? Oh, definitely. There is this inherent, I think, stereotype that goes on in our minds. So that in itself is critical. I I think through our program, which we've had, the uh, BD3 REAP program at Cal State University Fullerton, and uh, along with my incredible colleagues that I've worked with in the math and the biology department, we've actually, I mean, systemically, we have to provide small steps for all to engage in these types of experiences. I think what's been really successful for our program and for many um, underrepresented students, they experience this imposter syndrome. So we have to ourselves move past our own innate biases that we bring into our teachings, into what we're doing. And so that's one thing. And I think it's also within the cultures too that that's there, that this is what we like to study. And so I guess what, what I'm saying is that, yes, to move, moving past the negative stereotypes, moving past feelings of imposter syndrome. And I think the other issue is that there's a lot of feeling of isolation for BIPOC communities, for people of color on campuses. And so what our program has done, and 
we've had several evaluations that we've done with our students. And what we found is that really having that experience, that research-based experience, they had this ex- extraordinary experience at USC. And so this research inquiry-based experience and where they gain skills. So I really contribute their success to two things. One is through not just building self-efficacy, but what some of the students have said is that under knowing the belief of others, so other faculty in them was really important. So I think it was a combination of both. And that was really derived through four or five things that we did. And that was through intensive research experiences. So they built that efficacy. They knew how to code. They knew how to program, program in R. They had uh, experiences in Python and many more at when they went to USC. So they built their skills. The other really critical thing was that they built one-on-one relationships with faculty. So we didn't seem so, I guess, mysterious, unapproachable. We really had this program where they interacted individually with each faculty, especially at Cal State University, both at CSUF. And then the other thing we did, I think was really important and the evaluation actually demonstrated this is that they were a tight knit group. So we created this mass, this critical mass of students where they had each other's support. But I think what's also important in this fostering, this exploration, this desire, this, I guess, love of science and wanting to continue is to actually be part and uh, present in the broader scientific community. And it needs to be the right broader scientific community at times where they, I think they see people of color, they see faculty of color, not always, but I think it's important they see women in that in that particular field. And so for many students, they've never even gotten on a plane, they haven't been out of the state. So that really does change a lot of things in their mind and see that, oh, okay, they see all these other students doing other peers and say to themselves, if they can do it, I can certainly do it. So I think that those were were really critical steps in helping our students succeed and to apply to graduate school and uh, continue the, this uh, their education in the STEM field. So when we talk about Jon Snow, the way that you told that story felt to me like you just invited me into the conversation because you didn't start to define your terms and say, you know, these are the different kinds of data scientists. And this is this is in this year. I don't even think you mentioned the year because I would have I wouldn't even remembered it if I if I if you had said it. But you started really posing some questions. We kind of got immediately into Jon Snow's head and some of the challenges in the day and then some of the ways in which they were they were missing information. To like they they didn't have the imagination for the kinds of ways that disease were spreading in that time. And it's reminding me a little bit as you talk about some of your students' experiences that I mean, I even think for myself, and I consider myself to be very privileged in this world, but I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what degrees were. I didn't even know the degree I was earning, let alone somebody else. That I wouldn't have been able to tell you what a master's degree was versus a PhD versus other types of doctoral. I, I absolutely no idea. And so there's both the I just don't, I can't picture this world But then there's also the, I don't even think I would belong in there even if I could imagine it. So even if we tried to expand students' imagination, if all we show them are white men, 
We've actually made the problem worse of like, well, now that I see what the world looks like, I for sure couldn't fit in. So we have to have that, that I could see myself there, but also someone else could see me there too. Yes. yes. Someone else believes in me yes. that yes. I could do no, this. I, I think that is, that is so critical what you just said, that, that I think them seeing someone that looks like them is so important. I remember the first time I saw and I'm Indian, I saw an Indian girl on a TV show. And I remembered that moment when I was 12. I don't remember many things in my childhood, but I remember that moment. And I, I think that that continues to go back to, to yes, having representation of, of mentors that look like them. Because I think that really when they see that, they say, hey, you know, if this person could do it, I can do it too. It, it is really important. I think also... In addition to that, that we're, we're really discussing the, the, this, I don't think it's a new concept, but I'm glad we're talking about it, is allyship, right? That how do we support people of color, even if you're not that particular ethnicity? And so I also tell my students, it's okay to have others as allies. They, they don't need to look exactly like you, be you. But if they're there in, in expounding some sort of knowledge, information to help you become that independent scientist, that independent researcher eventually, and their styles may be different. Just don't get offended. You can't get offended in science. You just have to keep going. And like you said, sometimes a lot of students just don't know about a master's degree, what degree. And I I think a lot of them, many of us get caught up in that question of what question should I ask? What research question should I ask? So, so I guess if you go from the broader umbrella of just not knowing at all what it is, and then finally answering that question, what I just tell them is to just continue, continue. And if there's all types of responses in science. And so if it's something that you, that feels offensive to you, that's fine. That that's something that happened, but you, you have to get not used to it. I don't want to say that. But I think you have to work your way around it. And then just know that you won't get an immediate response from someone if they're busy. You have to go ahead and continue with it. Um, if you're, and it goes back to if you're passionate about your work, if that is what you want to do, you're passionate about that question, that will actually take you a long way in moving forward. But I think that the systems, you're right, not everyone can say that to themselves. And so that's why I think having programs like this, having other faculty at institutions maybe that may not have such exposure to diversity, Cal State Fullerton is incredible. I mean, we have a, such a diverse campus. I, I mean, when I am on at graduations, I've been at nearly, you know, 15 graduations. When I'm there, I look out into the audience. And I think this is the world. Well, I mean, we have people from all over the world. And it's such a unique place. But then I have to remind myself that many institutions are not like that. And I can see where students get that feeling of isolation and have that feeling of, you know, that there's these negative stereotypes about them and the microaggressions that they must feel when interacting with faculty. So I I think for those institutions, they do need to take a really good look at themselves. They need to say, okay, you know, how can we train our faculty? How can we work with them? And just actually recognizing it, you know, recognizing it. And so so once we do that, I I think that 
you know, it, it goes so much into having, why is it important to having scientists of people of color? One, I really do think they bring different ideas. When we get more perspective, we will get better representation, not just in the, the science, the, the academic field, but in participation. I mean, there's a lot of fear in, in communities to participate in science. And so once we can bring that understanding of a legitimate fear of where historically this comes from for participation in science, I think that they can help really help address that. And as I said, subsequently reduce the health equity or improve health equity, reduce health disparities. I, it's, a, it's sort of another both and. So there is helping people recognize that they are going to be operating in a world in which bias exists. Let's not try to pretend that it's not. You said very clearly, you know, we need to be able to name these things and, that, and they're not okay, but they're also not a reason that you should feel like you don't belong here. So it's kind of like, can they, can they, you talked about finding a way around, can, can they bring you any sort of strength? And we have to be very careful how we say these things and, and more in a question form to see kind of that own student, their own experiences, their own personality that they may be able to draw on in these things. But the other thing that I was, I was thinking back early on in the Me Too movement, there was a meme that kind of went everywhere. And it was asking, have you ever carried your keys in between your fingers on the way to the car? Have you ever waited for the next elevator? Have you ever walked to the other side of the street, waited until multiple people were going out into the parking lot? You get the idea. It was, you know, 20 things or whatever. And I, and I, I talked about that with a lot of women and we were all like, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> and again, that's not okay that that ever happened. But and so when we think about common microaggressions, it can be so healthy to talk about them. Because they're not okay. Yes, they're so representative of bias. But then you go, oh, but there's strength in numbers. <laughs> Look at how many of us have experienced this. And the only way we're going to have more representation is if we can kind of come together collectively and and find ways. But it's it, I just love what you said about it can be helpful for people to know that it's kind of a choice whether or not we want to take something so personally that it's going to affect every aspect of our life. There is a choice we could make to not, you know, not take it in. But again, I, it's so easy to oversimplify that. And it, this, this is something that we really wrestle with. No, I agree. I agree about that. And I mean, definitely, I say that it's not that that it's the individual but it, it is in, in some instances, I mean, we know that the barriers that are in front of African-Americans, Latinx communities, underrepresented communities, it does come down to the structural racism that we have set into place. And it starts from the Jim Crow laws. It continues with the massive incarceration that we see. So we know that's there. And we even know that they that in these communities that there's a huge block for them to even get to the university. So, I mean, the enormous block is, if we look, there's still segregation. There's still opportunity grabbing. There's still educational inequities that are going on at that level before they get it to the university. But when I when the students do get to that university, 
what what I try to say is in that that you were saying that yes, it's that it's not that choice, but it's to recognize that this will happen in science, that everyone will have to strive for it. Everyone, because everyone wants to get there. They want their research question addressed. They want to, you know, contribute to the field. And so I just ask them what I ask my students is just to continue to, to put one footstep in the in front of the other. If they can be there, then you deserve to be there as well. But mm-hmm. part of it is it, it is that self-efficacy building that once they get that skill and say, hey, I do know what this is. I do know what a variable is. I can look at a code book and understand the code book or a data dictionary. I mean, that that goes a long way into them feeling that I belong here, no matter where I came from. And then also being, as I said, preparing a poster, preparing an oral presentation, actually doing it, that builds a lot of confidence in saying that I'm able to be part of this community. So I, I definitely, yes, it, it's a combination of the two things. It, it is understanding that structural piece and then understanding how they can navigate that and they have navigated it to get there as, a, as an undergraduate and then to continue as a graduate student. Before we get to the recommendation segment, I wanted to just go a little bit more on self-efficacy. Well, actually, other efficacy. I don't know what the name for it would be, but you stress that as important. And I would love to hear a story for you of a student that you've worked with that you feel like you actually were able to utilize that. It's both knowledge and skill to be able to recognize the importance of building another up and letting them know that you have confidence in them. Does any story come to mind for you? Do you know, I have to say, there is one one story that comes to mind, but I think that I'm so impressed with all our students. Yeah, I, I really have to say that. I mean, when you give them an opportunity, and and that's where our inherent bias comes in, because many of them come in quiet and shy, and not really able to talk about what they're interested in. But once you expose them to all these opportunities, and and actually um, tell them, okay. He, find the research question you're interested in. Here's the data set that you can look at. These are the tests you can run and actually have them do it. Have them sit down, download the data set, take a look at it. The transformation is undeniable. That's what I really love to see in all of these students. And I, I think that that partially does go into them understanding that, that we believe in them, that I believe in them. I believe that they can do it. And that not to let that go wasted. I mean, I've had some students who are able to explain. And that's the nice thing about our program. It was it is multidisciplinary. I work with um, Dr. Kahunko in the uh, biology department, Dr. Bastetta in the mathematics department, Dr. Mitra in the business department, and of course Dr. Toga and Breski from USC. So you could see it was this collaborative work. And so I think when students are exposed to that and when they're able to explain pathways that I don't understand, that's what I wanted to say, that they're able to do it in such detail and understanding the clarity that they present to me. I just think, why can't you do this? Why wouldn't you do this? Why wouldn't you pursue this? You are a natural scientist. So yeah, I, I definitely think, I mean, there's a couple of students where I could say they had a lot of life challenges but we stuck with them. I stuck with them and said that there's n- no rationale. I don't see any reason why 
you shouldn't pursue this. You are a, a scientist. You ask the right questions. You want to pursue this. And so I'm proud to say that that those couple of students are in their master's program, one of them fully funded. So yeah, but I think they're all capable. They just blow me away every time they present their work, that how much they time they take into understanding, into relaying, into practicing. So I think anyone, I was going to use the Harry Potter analogy. <laughs> anyone can be Harry Potter. <laughs> you know, but but it, meaning that like that, I think if we have the correct mentored, I guess, philosophy, mentored training that that is needed, that any student can really get there and reach that potential. I'm hearing something that feels so new, and it's probably just because I've had to hear it multiple times just to be able to understand it. But you aren't saying that you're just encouraging them. I believe in you. You're giving them evidence for them to believe in themselves. Because the way that you shared that story wasn't that you patted them on the head and said, you, you're great. You, you gave them opportunities to do things that scientists do. And you've said, hey, here's the evidence. What evidence do you have that you can't do this? Because I just saw you do it. Exactly. That is so powerful. Yeah. I love that you just, of course, you would approach it like a scientist. (laughs) Like You gave them data. You gave them data that would support the hypothesis that they can do this instead of just trite words. Oh, definitely. Definitely. It's when the inquiry-based learning, that's really, for me, where it begins. No, I, I definitely agree with that. That exactly, it's evidence for themselves. It's data for themselves. Oh, that's really powerful. Yeah. Well, this is the time in the show that we each get to share our recommendations. And I hadn't really known, of course, where our conversation was going to go. And I'm realizing it does kind of fit in with your story. So I watched a movie called Queen of Katwe. And it is a biographical drama, and it depicts the story, the real-life story of Fiona Mutesi. She's a girl who lived in Katwe, which is a, a slum in Uganda. And she ends up, she's, she's supposed to sell maize for her mom and her other family members are. They have been in poverty for generations, and it's one of those stories where it just feels like there's no escape and she ends up seeing there's a community group that the the man who leads it both teaches them how to play soccer and he also teaches them how to play chess. And you can tell just even if you looked at the movie poster, so I'm not giving too much away that she ends up being pretty darn good at it. And I won't I won't give the the ending away, but it definitely is a feel good movie for what's possible when people have access and they're able to cuz it the thing that comes out in the movie is not that this man taught this young woman everything about chess. He he didn't he he was a decent player at chess, but that wasn't his area of expertise. But that there was so much potential within her, so it really does tie back to the story that you just told and he provided encouragement, but again it was really encouragement based on the evidence that she demonstrated of being uniquely good at this and then he was able to advocate for her and become an ally for her. And it it's just wonderful. And of course that man who's in the story 
also was a member of the community there and had risen from poverty. And um, I won't, again, I don't want to give too much of the story away other than to say some of the problems I know with movies like this in the past is that there's sort of the white savior that comes in to, <laughs> to say that it's not one of those stories, at least because he is from that community and he's able to be a part of sort of healing and making possibilities available. But but because this is such an extraordinary woman, it's really fun. And that the, at the end of the movie, they share kind of what some of the characters in the movie and what their actual lives are like now. And that's, of course, always fun to see. And yeah, it's a great movie. So I'll pass it over to you now for whatever you'd like to recommend. Thank you. I'll have to watch. I think I did see it, but I didn't uh, watch it. So I will have to do that. It's so good. It's I, really great. I, I've been thinking about this. There's a couple of things I wanted to add. And uh, one is one book that really stayed with me. And it, it's kind of a, a flip in some ways to what you were saying. I, I don't know if you uh, are aware of the book, The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace. It's written by Jeff Hobbs. It's a true story. It's about a young man. Uh, and he. And as I was reading through this, I, I just kept thinking about, okay, where could have we have intervened in the education system? Where could have we, um, you know, advocated or supported for a better outcome, but it, it actually, it's, it's a great book. It, it is, you know, very, t I, I have to say that it is a sad book in, in many ways when you're reading through it, but, but it's very telling of our systems and our communities that's going on, but it's about a young man, a, a young African-American man. He grew up in the worst socioeconomic areas in New York, New Jersey, but he was brilliant. He was he, at a young age, he had this memory where he could remember many, I mean, facts that most people can't remember. And he just had this innate intellectual ability that most people don't. And his mom, once again, single mother, father was incarcerated, where you can see the, the mass incarceration, the systemic racism. But he actually did make it into an Ivy League eventually. But even after that, I kept thinking, where, what are the points where we could have intervened, where we could have, you know, I, I don't want to give away the entire story and the entire book, but, but sadly, yeah, it's, it doesn't end, you know, it's not a happy note, unlike what you were mentioning about the movie, which seems uplifting, but, but I think it, it does give such a good insight on where are the, the points. Um, and I kept thinking that could it have been this point? Could it have been that point? Should we have done this here? Should we have done? I mean, because even in his classes at school, he barely studied and was able to just do extremely well. Mm. I mean, it was such a tragic loss that that it shouldn't have happened, and it probably is for all the things that we talked about. But but that was it. it still, it's very impressionable. Really, really good, good book to read and. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is just now, you know, we, we've really had, it's been tough time for many people. I mean, we've gone through an incredible experience, incredible, difficult time. And, and I think many of us have felt that obviously we've had to stay home. We've talked about being in isolation. Sometimes many people feel that way. And so I think it's just really important to, to move, to get up, to move to get that energy going in our bodies. And that can really, really for me, when I step outside, I look at the sunset, I look at the birds, the leaves, um, that to me, that makes, it really is 
a revitalizing because we really forget that. I think part of our brain shuts off if we don't do that. And just having that movement really helps get us going. A short walk, even a, a brisk walk for a little bit amount of time and increasing your heart rate level just increases that heat in our body and makes us feel different. And I think we're in missing that right now. So it's really important to, to do that for us. Oh, I love both of these recommendations. I'm sort of, of course, we didn't plan this. We didn't know what each other would be recommending, but I almost hesitated to recommend the Queen of Katwe just because it does feel a little, a little bit sort of too neat and tidy and life doesn't work that way. And it's certainly not. And so I kind of like that you sort of were able to parallel that it's still an enjoyable piece of entertainment, but there are real systemic issues. And so I, I think they, they actually go together, even though we didn't plan it. And boy, what a difference moving can make. And thank you for that reminder to us as well. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So important. I'm so glad to have been connected with you today. And from even just when we hopped on the line together, you just have brought me a lot of a lot of ideas. I mean, it's really fun to hear you talk about your work and the ways in which you're able to help to fill that equity gap in STEM fields. I'm so appreciative for your work. And then you also mentioned so many colleagues, because I know this is something that is done definitely as a team. It's not something that people can do alone. And I just love your work and collaboration like that. And I'm going to encourage people to go visit some of the links on the show notes for the episode too, because I want them to be able to go see specifically about the work that your center's doing and some of your collaborative efforts there as well. So I'm just such a joy to be connected with you. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And it was great speaking with you today. I'm so thankful to Dr. Archna McElliott for joining me for today's episode and to the Cal State University for connecting us. Thanks to all of you for listening to the episode as well. If you would like to receive the updates from Teaching in Higher Ed with recent show notes as well as a blog post written by me, you can head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to see the show notes for today's episode, head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash 346. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.